Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My name is Dylan Jones, and I'm here talking to Paul Weller. This is the final instalment of our fascinating podcast with Paul Weller, where he talks about his career from the heady days of the jam in the punk years right through to the Style Council in the 80s, his solo career from the 90s onwards. mod culture yeah when were you first aware of it and when when were you first aware of what it was um i saw some pictures right around 75 70 yeah so 1975 i saw some pictures of some 60s mods and it connected with me and i kind of thought where do i know that from i don't know because i don't really remember it when i was a little kid but then i must have seen some driving around on scooters or whatever but it also seemed like an extension to me of, like, um, the skinhead suede thing, really. I don't say it was philosophically, but clothing-wise, I saw some of the older lads would ride around on scooters. This is before we had to wear a crash helmet as well. So there would still be, like, in 70, 71, there was people riding around on scooters. And uh, to me, the music and clothes were pretty similar, really. I thought there was a definite connection to me, mainly sort of Ivy League-influenced. Uh, but then also really sort of West Indian influence as well, you know, short trousers, red socks and all that stuff. A lot of black kids were wearing that stuff from like 66 onwards. I've seen pictures, you know, people from that time and it's really not too far away from what it became, you know. There's a fantastic picture of these kids outside, black and white kids outside Tiles, a club in London, in Oxford Street, from about 66. And they think, well, they could be mods, but they could also be skinners or suaders as well. It's very similar. Short hair, slightly off centre parting. Again, another West Indian fashion copied by white kids. Best mod look. Um, well, you can't go too far wrong with the small faces, really, I think. Up until when they started make, wearing the more kind of hippie stuff. But prior to that, I thought they always looked great, all four of them. To have a band with all four members looking that sharp and looking like a band. I don't know if it got much better than that to me. Are you a collector of anything that would surprise people? No. It's just records and clothes, man. It's never been any different. It's always the same thing. Don't collect cars or uh, train sets or, you know. <laughs> it's, just rec rec it's still records and clothes. Are you a big consumer of vinyl? Yeah, less so in recent years, but I would still, still prefer something on vinyl, definitely. Can you remember the, the first item of clothing you bought with your own money? Uh, yeah, it was a Brutus shirt, short sleeve Brutus shirt. Very similar to a shirt that Brutus put out two or three years ago. 
and all my mates I know <laughs> have all got the same shirt. What, so, what, what colour is it? Check. It's kind of like a blue, and it's got a red check over the top of it. It's a bit of a classic sort of look. Anyway, that was the first shirt I ever bought, and all my mates, every single one, have had the same shirt. <laughs> so we started off with yeah Levi's first, which were about thirty bob from the co-op. That was as cheap as you could get them. My mum bought me a pair of Levi's, and I got my Brutus shirt, and then. Probably have monkey boots or DMs, I'm not sure, one or the other. And then it just snowballed from there, really. And then uh, I had a paper round at the time as well. So I was earning a little bit of money, enough to save up and buy stuff. And, um, you know, I always say, you know, we were all part of the over-the-counter culture. Do you know what I mean? It was all, uh, I've got to have that thing, I've got to have that shirt, I've got to have that stay press. And, you know, so it was uh, a weekly, weekly, um, we go shopping weekly and we have to buy it on the knock, you know, there's a place called Dazzles in Woking where you could pay on tick, get whatever you wanted to get and then you pay five bob a week or whatever it was, two bob a week. So I, yeah, I was just obsessed with it, man. I just, I remember going to school, must have been about 71 maybe, in a pair of, uh, of ice blue stay press and I had white basketball boots on which were popular at the time and then Maybe my tank top jumper with the blazer on top anyway. And I managed to get away with it for a couple of days until I was told, you know, you've got to change well, I don't wear that again. And, um, but they were just the greatest clothes ever, I think. For me personally, right, between 66 and 72 were the greatest time for fashion for me. I still think most of the styles were so brilliant then. Uh, and I just spent all my time looking in. There was two, two boutiques in Woking, right? There was one called Flax, which sold a lot of sort of skinhead suede stuff, Ben Sherman's, Brutus, etc. And I would just spend a long time looking in the window. It was like Aladdin's cave, you know. But I thought that was the greatest look for me at the time, anyway. And have you got anything from that period? What, what, what's your oldest piece of clothing that you've still got? The oldest thing I've got, which wasn't mine, but was given to me by a dear friend of mine, Steve Ellis, who was a singer in The Love Affair. And he gave me his 1967 Ben Sherman long wow. sleeve Ben Sherman shirt, which was almost sort of turquoise with chocolate brown candy stripes, which is a little bit too small for me now, and it's well worn, but it's just a most amazing shirt. Wow. Yeah. And I've got a Granny Takes a Trip. He also gave me a Granny Takes a Trip um, uh, satin shirt with a beagle collars as well. That's pretty amazing. And do you wear it? If I could fit in it, I would. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was like 15 at the time he bought it. So. so no sooner had you launched your solo career than you suddenly become uh, the godfather of Britpop. How did that whole thing kind of... Um, uh, did it impress you? Did it, I mean... I didn't really like being called the god Modfather or Godfather. <laughs> I was only like thirty-two, man. I've seemed a little bit exactly it's weird, right? You've yeah. had you've had two careers. Suddenly, you're a solo artist, and you're being revered as someone on a pedestal. I'm sure part of you kind of loved that, did you? Uh, well, it was nice after being so vilified for a number of years by the British <laughs> press and that, and people as well, really. Um, so it was nice to be liked again. Who doesn't like to be liked? Uh, I did find it amusing. I was a little bit cynical about it. but um, Cynical because of the press or the bands? No, not the bands. No, the press, really. Because 
all of a sudden it was all right. I was all right again. And um, but around that time of like Stanley Road, Wildwood, Stanley Road, I'd have a lot of people going, "It's amazing! It's amazing!" And I was like, "Really? I mean, it's just what I've been doing." As far as I'm concerned, it's just what I've been doing anyway. So it was funny that it connected with people in such a big way. There was no plan to do that whatsoever. And in fact, I remember a time in 91, just before my first solo album come out, which came out in 92. So about 91, we did a couple of shows at the Albert Hall. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I went to them. We did a couple of them, yeah. which were fucking amazing. And uh, I was quite happy with that level of success or whatever you want to call it. I, was, I thought this would do me. I like it. I was under the radar still. The first album come out didn't get good reviews. I was still hated around that time. But a lot of people like that record. And a lot of old fans started to sort of creep back in as well. They liked that record. It kind of helped them back into it. I don't know, whatever. And, um, but I was kind of happy with that. I was kind of happy with just, you know, I'm just do totally doing my own thing. I'm not bowing to anyone. I made that first solo album without a, without a label. Uh, I was lucky that I couldn't get a deal. I couldn't get a deal anyway for it. And um, um, God bless them, but a Japanese label called Pony Canyon wanted to wanted the record and they gave me 100 grand, which was big money for me at the time, still is. Uh, <laughs> and, and, that, and, and that enabled me to, to make the record to finish the album off. So it actually came out in Japan first because there was no deal over here. I couldn't get arrested. And then and then Godis were interested, yeah. And I put a single out, Into Tomorrow Right. It was my first solo single, and I don't know when that was, 92 or something. And we just did that ourselves. That was like self-finance thing. We had a bit of help from a couple of people, like marketing people. And that felt good to do that. It felt good. I was kind of felt I was outside of the business, really. I didn't have a fucking label breathing down my throat on my neck. And, um, I was autonomous, you know, and, and, I, and I enjoyed that. And then Wildwood did really well. Stanley Road went sort of stupidly big. And then I stopped enjoying it. I didn't really... It was nice to sell records and make money, blah, 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 doing bigger, gig, bigger gigs. But I still preferred that period before, 91, when I was just bubbling under and doing my, doing my own thing. But for someone who had always had a high level of self-confidence, there must have been going solo, psychologically, there must have been another level of sort of insecurity. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, at, the, at the start of it, definitely. I mean, I did a tour, so I hadn't played for a little bit anyway, and the Star Council had finished, and I hadn't played for some time. And then I think it was 1990, my dad, who was still managed me, was saying, we need some money, boy, we're, we need, we need, we're skinned, we need some dough, we need to get out on the roads. So I was like, all right, OK. I wasn't really, I was really very, very reluctant to do that. I didn't really feel confident about that at all. But it was a very practical decision. It's like, okay, we've got to make some money, so we'll get out on the road. And then we, we, so we toured quite a bit. We did a little tour of Europe, which was mental. Sometimes like 30 people in a little club in, in Rimini or something. <laughs> what are we doing? You know, what am I doing? So it was very weird to have all that success with the German, the Style Council, to think, oh shit, they've got to start again. You know, starting from pretty much ground up, you know. And I, I hated that tour. I hated it. I, we went to playing in Gold Diggers 
in the gold diggers in Chippenham or whatever to a few hundred people. It was bizarre. Um, but I got through it and through it, through working, I found my, um, my music again and, um, and started to enjoy writing songs again, you know. And then, then the first album came about through that. But it took a good sort of year or two years to get back into that, you know, to feel confident about what I do and what I'm doing. The early shows were shocking, really, a lot of them, really bad. So after the, the Stanley Road level of fame, did you experience a similar kind of thing as you did at the height of the jam where you felt that this is... Yeah, I didn't it... like it. I don't like that. I don't like that level of success. Um, because, like I said, it, it goes out of your control. It goes, it goes stupid. It goes silly, you know. It always has to be extremes. And uh, that's not really, not really me. And I can even remember at the time, you know, I'd be chatting to in a room or a club or whatever, and everyone's laughing at my jokes, and you know, which whether they're here for their jokes or not, I don't know. But everyone, I just felt that pressure, that sycophancy, and everything. Oh, it's so funny, and uh, and I can see through that shit, you know. And I didn't like that at all. It's not me at all. And I wasn't interested in being elevated up into being a fucking superstar I'm not interested in that bullshit I want to be left alone <clears throat> to do what I want to do and make the music I make and I'm happy doing that and whatever audience I have hopefully it's enough to make it you know viable but it is what it is you know and uh, so I wasn't comfortable with that definitely not okay so what did you do about it how did you combat it I took lots of drugs and drunk loads. and uh, But I was also going through a lot of other crap at the time as well. I split up with my wife, Dee, which was awful, and I felt terrible for years after that, and I tried my best to sort of... I don't know if I was trying to kill myself, but I was certainly fucking going for it because I felt so bad and so guilty. Um, so also that kind of negated any any feelings of pleasure I was getting from being successful. On the one hand, I was being really successful in music... And then, but in, but in my personal life, it was a bit in tatters, really, you know, letting down my wife and leaving my kids and, you know, it's not good at all. So it just made me dive even further into sort of, you know, hedonism, really, because I felt so bad about things. And um, so it was a nice period and it was a productive and creative period, but it also was kind of tinged with uh, darkness as well for me a little bit, you know. So... When people are like, why is he so grumpy and why is he so miserable? You know, you've got all this success. And it's like, well, I'm going through this other shit, right? But you don't know about and you don't need to know about. It's my own thing to sort out. So it's a strange time for me, really, you know. This duality of success and sadness as well. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, how did you pull yourself out of it emotionally and, and musically? Well, I just kept on working, like I always do. Uh, you know, the show must go on, you know. But I didn't stop working. I just carried on working. We just toured and toured and Heavy Soul came after that. That was a couple of years after Stanley Road. But I just worked. I just played. I was constantly playing or in the studio. It was just the same, same thing. My name is Dylan Jones and I'm here talking to Paul Weller. You appear to go through this quite ex a protracted period of experimentation where you would do different things, sort of almost deliberately. Was there, were you sort of willfully doing that? Uh, what do you mean? What could be an example? Um, musically, where one record would be very different from the next and the fact that you were getting, uh, one minute you'd be more psychedelic, then you'd make a more soulful record, and you just seem to be going off in tangents. Yeah. Good tangents. Well, it was whatever the mood took me, really, wherever I felt it should be going. I think after the success of Stanley Road, the only problem with having a big record like that is that everyone, people and the record company, they want um, the same. They want another one of them. And I didn't want to do that at all, you know. I wanted to make Stanley Road Part 2. So I made Heavy Soul and I tried to make it far more abrasive and uh, less commercial, I suppose, really. And I guess that was a conscious decision. Whether it's willful, I don't know, but it was certainly conscious. I was more conscious of not making Stanley Road Part 2. That was a big thing for me. And, of course, you know, once all the people around you have tasted this sort of ridiculous success from selling a million records or whatever it was, everyone wants more. Everyone wants more of that. Let's keep this going, you know. And it doesn't always work like that, you know. Coming more up to date with um, True Meanings and now On Sunset, you've, you've seemed to return to a world that's, that's driven by... Melody, mm. and as a consumer and as a critic, you seem to have you seem to be really enjoying a rediscovery of that. Was that a purposeful thing to do? Mm. Well, when we, I think with True Meaning, right, because it was so, uh, well, I don't know, if exposed sounds a bit extreme, but because it was kind of just one man and a guitar and his songs in it, you know, essentially, right. The songs have got to stand up. You know, you're not going to dress them up. You're not going to have a great drum beat or some guitar riff or whatever. It's, a, it's really just about the song and the singer and the performance. But it didn't teach me anything. There's nothing I didn't know before. I mean, I just thought, well, they, all these songs have got to be very strong and stand up. And that was the kind of brief, if such a thing was such a thing. But I don't think my sense of melody, without blowing me trumpet too much, but I, I think if I've got any strength at all in my writing, one of my biggest strengths is that I do write melodic songs really just come easy to you writing melodies well i guess so because i've been doing it for a lot, a lot of long time and uh so I, I guess so yeah i remember neil tennant from the pet shop boys once saying when he was a critic at the smash hits he, he always used to talk about bands having this sort of purple period or this, this, uh, this golden period i can't remember what what color he used but it was about the fact that bands if they were lucky they had sort of seven 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 years like the beatles had seven years yeah um but you've had a very long career uh, and you're still doing it and you're still ha having um, pretty extraordinary success. But are you ever surprised by it? Yeah, mostly every day. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I am surprised. But I, of course I'm surprised by it because 
who expects to be doing this for as long as I did? You I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine it when I was a kid. You know, when I was like 25, 30, I just thought, I don't know, what, do, what do you do after that? You know, do you still go on? And then obviously, you know, as you know yourself, it's just all of a sudden you turn a corner, you're 14 and you're 45 and so it goes and you're still doing the same thing and you just think, well, I'm doing it because I love it. And this is what I do in life. I was chosen to do this or I chose to do it, whatever way it works, I have no idea. A bit of both. So I never question it beyond that. I don't think, why am I doing this? You know, I do it because I have to do it. I need to do it. You know, some things you do because you've got to pay the bills, obviously. With, well, it's probably more live work that sort of does that. But with the music, I just... Uh, it still fascinates me. I still... We did the other week, we were in there, and... Um, that thing of starting out with this little germ of an idea and by the end of the day it's become this fully-fledged song and a track and it's just like, how did we do that again? You know, you're kind of trying to recount your steps and it's just like a little bit of magic that happens. And I still find that fascinating. I still think for me, sort of scratching around at home on an acoustic guitar, singing into my phone, these funny little rough ideas and and all of a sudden they turn into something beautiful or, you know, something complete and... Um, it's a fascinating thing, is it? There's this element of magic in it as well, you know. It's funny, I interviewed Paul McCartney a couple of weeks ago and he used exactly the same word. He's, right. Someone said, do you believe in magic? Instead of, of course I do. Yeah. Same you same. know, look what I'm lucky enough to do. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about On Sunset, uh, which is the new record, which has got some fabulous songs on it. It's got a complex record, full of great melodies, but the title song um, was, was inspired by... Uh, trip back to L.A., which, which, which caused you to be uncharacteristically nostalgic, is this right? Reflective, certainly, Reflective, yeah. Reflective, yeah. But um, it was, yeah, I stayed in a little hotel just off the strip. I went to visit my son, my oldest son, he lives out there. He's been there for three or four years. And, um, and I stayed in a little hotel, boutique sort of hotel, just off the strip, and up the top of the road, my roads, was the whiskey and the rainbow room. And then a bit further down was Sunset Marquee, that famous hotel. But I hadn't actually walked. I mean, I've been to LA, God knows how many times since then. But I hadn't actually walked in that area since I was 19 and we first went to America. Because we played, that's where we played when we first went there, Whiskey. We did two nights and two shows a night. But I just thought, God, I haven't walked around here for ages now. You know, I don't remember the last time. And I just thought, fucking, it was like 43 years ago or something, you know, 77. When I was 19 and I couldn't get served a drink and all that stuff. <laughs> So that's the basis of the song, right? And I, I say this often that the songs are kind of, not all of them, but some of the songs start off as biographical because it, it's an emotional, I'm thinking of this, I'm whatever thought, I'm, I'm thinking of the time. and But then I broaden them out, you know, then I kind of make it into a bigger picture. So I was imagining it isn't just me anymore, but someone else who goes looking for old friends or old lovers, even, you know, hasn't been this for all these years and... Everyone's gone, everyone's moved on, they're married, they're whatever they do, they're dead or whatever. And uh, and and I just realised it is a... It felt like a lifetime, and it is a lifetime, you know, from 19 to 60... Whatever, I was 60 when I was at the time. Um, <clears throat> it's an incredible amount of time that's elapsed, and without realising it, it's just gone, you know. And it doesn't feel like a lifetime, but it is. And... Um, so that was the basis for the song. And then, like I say, but then I try and broaden it out, you know, make it about other people. It could be about you, it could be about him, it could be, you know, whatever. There's a, a beautiful song on the album called More, um, yeah. which is, we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about this, um, which seems to chime with 
many things that have happened in the last couple of months mm -hmm. where we've been uh, we've been unable to consume in the way that we have consumed, and we haven't missed, um, and we haven't missed it, have we? No, do you know what I mean? But the um, and you said at the time it was uh, uh, it, it was about the fact that um, we've probably got enough. What what is this this um, rapacious nature that we have for for keep yeah. buying buy more? Where did, where did that idea come from? Yeah, probably post-war mass consumerism, I guess. You know what I mean? We all bought it. We're all part of that, aren't we? With our generations, all post-war generations were part of that. Get a bigger car. Uh, have more, you know, eat more. And uh, and, I, and I, really, it's a direct influence from America, really, isn't it? You know, bigger fridges, bigger cars, uh, more on your plate, supersize, you know, go and get a fucking bucket full of Coca-Cola and, and a turkey leg. And um, uh, it doesn't make us happy, does it, evidently? And I went to America, uh, not recently, but early part of this year, and I thought... Um, people are so overweight there and the shit they eat. And I thought, I felt sad, but I thought they're killing themselves. And they're pushed into, pushed into doing that as well, I think, as well. Get more for your buck, you know, come out of a fucking box of food like this, you know, which you really don't need, but, you know, because it's cheap and... Um, so... More doesn't always mean happiness, doesn't it? You know, I've also seen poverty. That doesn't make people happy neither. So don't get me wrong. But there's an in-between, surely. And when you think it's something like the third of the world's food produce is in the West, you know, goes to the West and look how much gets wasted. And, and, then, on, and then during this lockdown thing, even our own smaller scale in home, we stopped wasting so much food. It's just disgraceful thinking about it. So... We've made sure we, when you get a shop, when you get a weekly shop or whatever, day, you know, every few days, you make sure you consume that food, you know. Don't get, you don't want to get in shitloads of it or bulk buying, but make sure you use all those things, you know. And there's been lots of things I haven't really missed. However much I love clothes and always will do, I've not been able to go shopping and I haven't really... I did miss it at first, but now I'm not, and I just think I've got enough clothes, actually. I don't really, <laughs> you know... I don't really need more clothes. So it's made me re-evaluate lots of things just on a domestic home level as well. Do you think it will affect people long-term? Long Psychologically, do you think we're going to be different people after this? I really hope so, because I can see, also see some very, very good and positive sides of what's happened as well. Mainly with the environment and nature. I've noticed in London how cleaner the air is and I haven't missed hearing an aeroplane going over for two months. It's so <laughs> nice. And I've heard the birds singing, even in London. And I've seen so many uh, birds I've not seen for years coming back into the gardens and stuff, you know. So obviously when we're out the fucking way, we're the virus, when we're out the way, nature takes its course and nature will always continue. And we'll be shaken off at some point, but the planet will always be here. Global warming or not, it will just transform and it will change and adapt and... So there is many, many lessons to be learned from it. Environment and pollution being a big one, I think. But um, maybe hopefully a sense of one world because we've all been affected by it. The world is a kind of pretty much affected by it. Shouldn't that be the time to think we 
to unify each other, you know. But then you've got all this shit that's happening now in America and not as a new thing. And you just think, well, I don't know if that's gonna, ever going to happen. But hopefully, if we're smart enough, we would learn and take something from this time with us, you know. Whether we do or not, I don't know. People say, when's it going to go back to normal? It's like, does it need to go back to normal? Couldn't we have something different now? Isn't it a time for some sort of changes and... Um, consumerism, definitely, and greed and the planet and the environment. I mean, they're all things that we could... Lessons to be learned here. And, and, a, and, a time, and a good time to change those things. It's a time we could do it. Are you an optimist? Totally. Absolutely, yeah. I'm an optimist and... Uh, sometimes I have to force myself into it. Not always. Most of the time I'm just naturally optimistic. And sometimes I force myself into it. Like when my kids said the other day, it's going to be another world war. It's like, well, it's quite possible. But I didn't say that. I said, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> because they don't want to hear that shit, man. They don't need to hear that. Paul Weller, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.